There's so many things that are cool about Pentecost, and we're going to be talking for the next several hours. A lot of great music as well, but you know, one of the great things is you get to learn three different languages. So this festival is called the Feast of Weeks in English, Shavuot in Hebrew, or Pentecost in Greek. So we, we end up all these languages just because of the, the long journey through history that we get to encounter. Same thing with the name of Jesus. This is the English version of it. In Hebrew, Yeshua in Greek, Jesus would be as close as you're going to get. So we're going to take this journey through time. In other words, we're going to go back 3,500 years and going to kind of walk through it. Now, because I, I come in and I've been teaching on these for years and years and years, but this year, is there anything that's just like normal or regular right now? Absolutely not. So, of course, we can't imagine Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks Shavuot to be normal either. In fact, for the last several months, I have, as I've been preparing, uh, one of the things I realized very early on is it's going to be so different. So, in fact, it's going to take a while for us to actually get to the topic of Pentecost because of that. So, we're the actual title of this is Pentecost and the Pale Horse. So, for those of you that read Revelation, you'll recognize it as the fourth horseman uh, and end times preview. So, what in the world is that all about? Well... Let me, a little disclaimer, since the following deals with the prophetic and end time realms, let me say clearly up front, I do not believe we are near the time of the Great Tribulation. That's not what all this pan pandemic is about. We are not at the end times, uh, Great Tribulation. However, what I have come to terms with is I do believe we are about halfway through a brief end times glimpse or preview that's likely to last a few more months and really based on prayer and study and some dreams and visions over the last few months i've come to some suppositions as to what this pandemic may be about on a spiritual prophetic level so these all deal with the spring feasts from purim to pentecost how the biblical year that we're in 5780 impacts them and what i believe god is doing in america the world and his church in this season so that's kind of like your disclaimer going in. So it's already a whole lot of stuff to talk about. So let's just jump right in. It is just a glimpse. Like so many of us since early March, I've been questioning the changes our nation has undergone during this pandemic, as well as uh, the punishing impacts it's had upon the world. And I've asked a thousand times probably, how did America ever get here? And is there a way back? And the answer is, I believe we are in a rare spiritual place. Very rare, as if peering at an End Times trailer before the movie begins. And the movie is, of course, the End Times with the four horsemen of the Revelation casting a, a bloody shadow on some future day of destruction. We are at a distance of time and space, seeing just a glimpse of that. So what you an experience here in America and around the world is that. So such previews occurred during both world wars with murderous Antichrist rising like heralds of the end. But of course, it wasn't the end. It wasn't the Great Tribulation, just a regular tribulation that the world will go through many times. Now, the horrors of those wars are just memories. The Antichrists are dead. They're buried. And in many cases, the authority they stole has been reclaimed. And so here we are in 2020 with a new vantage point that's arrived to give us another sneak peek of the end. God loves to prepare us, you know. Now, America has been so blessed and to see it shaken by this current trouble is definitely starting, startling. But uh, 
There's a verse that I just hold on to daily. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, the cry of David in Psalm 27. And I believe that many of our states are already beginning the journey back. And you see some of the crowns and authority that uh, were taken starting to return to the rightful heads. But the whole world has already suffered greatly. But you know what? The sad note is this is really just the beginning. I believe government shutdowns didn't just cripple some of the world economies. It destroyed them. And most people in the third world, as we've been to many countries, they just live walking through the shadow of death every day. That's, that's life for them. Their seasons are famine, wars, sickness, and oppression. It's not good. So what you've gone through is just a, a taste of what they go through daily. So we have been watching... Brief glimpses of the first three horsemen from Purim in March, Passover in April, and second Passover earlier this month. I believe we are now awaiting the glimpse of this fourth seal and horseman on Pentecost. Now, just a glimpse, not the real thing, with its effects continuing through summertime. I believe this final glimpse is actually going to bring two to three times more suffering and death to the nations than the first three seals and horsemen combined. I don't know if it will have that great of an impact on America, but I do believe it will have that on the world. God loves to give us previews of what he's doing before he does it. He was the Passover lamb in Egypt 1,500 years before he died as that lamb on Calvary. He was present as the coming Messiah, Redeemer, Mediator, Groom, Priest, and King in 574 Old Testament verses, 558 rabbinic writings. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies given over 4,000 years. Good gosh. So, as we jump in here, let me just give you two things to think about. Let's compare what the Great Tribulation will look like and versus what these previews or glimpses look like. So the Great Tribulation, when the end of the world happens, Scripture says, For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Falling away simply means to forsake the truth or to be an apostasy. And, you know, you you see some of that if you look at America with, with people's arguments and fightings. And it's like, gosh, there's some very weird perspectives but the man of sin in that end times will be the antichrist capital a who will sign and then break a world peace agreement before attacking israel this great tribulation period will see kingdoms conquered the end of peace destroyed economies famine plague death and wild beasts on the attack there will be seven seals open that release four horsemen. There will be earthquakes, the heaven receding, terror like never before. Trumpets will release with more tribulation and woe. Dragons and beasts and angels reaping. Tormentors, 180 miles of blood, four feet deep. That's exciting. Then the plagues and bowls of wrath begin and so much more. So obviously, we're not in the middle of that. That's pretty clear, right? So, what are the previews or glimpses? What are What is it we are experiencing? Well, what's happening now during this pandemic and what occurred during both world wars, really, during those glimpses is they, fit, they featured kind of a condensed version of the four horsemen. There were many antichrists and the first four seals, which one day I believe will be open on feast days. And there also seems to be a biological aspect in each glimpse. You have the Spanish flu in World War I, with mustard gas, atomic radiation in World War II. And this one, of course, we have the coronavirus. So one really important reality to get in your head for this one, there's both good and bad. There's not just ever bad. The horsemen, well, Satan and Antichrist on horses raging until it seems all is lost, but they will not prevail. They're here to get power and authority. 
The seals, though. Jesus, the Lamb of God, opens the seals. So it's not all bad news and destruction. Whatever happens will end with God's will being done and his judgment coming forth. So God's church will rise, his glory will be seen on us, and his victory will be won. Pentecost is when God poured out his Holy Spirit to empower us. So you got to imagine, of all the feasts, this is an exciting one, even though there's bad that goes with it because of the, the, the glimpse of the horsemen. But there's just so much to talk about. So that's basically your intro. So we're going to start with a very basic question. What is Pentecost? And when is Pentecost, too? It's, uh, you know, we talked about three languages. So for some, there'll be, it's a harvest festival. You know, back during Passover, you celebrate the harvest of barley. And at Pentecost, it's the harvest of wheat. So most basically, if you lived and grew all your food, you would love to know what kind of bread you're going to eat. So that was a harvest <laughs> festival. And it's uh, exactly seven weeks from the residence. Well, day we look at is Resurrection Day or First Fruits when Jesus rose from the grave, and it was when you harvested the barley. And now we have another First Fruits, which is begins tonight. If you're in from the Jewish perspective, and it begins what they call the Feast of Weeks. Now, several things happen on this. For them, the most important thing is this is when they arrived from Egypt to Mount Sinai and received the law of God. Mm. Moses went up on the mountain, and God actually declared it out loud to them. So. It's a pretty big deal because they are caretakers of the word of God. So Pentecost is huge of the Feast of Weeks. Now, so this is tonight. They'll celebrate tonight all the way through tomorrow night and then all the way through Saturday night. Uh, for some, they'll celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. All right. That's more of the uh, English version of this. Which is of this Pentecost, Sunday. Which is this Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, which is anniversary where you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it's, it's an appropriate time to really focus in what do you do? How do you celebrate? You pray. You pray, you pray, you pray, because that's what they were doing when God came down. That's what they should have been doing when God said, I want to marry you. And it's all about the wedding between God and man. It's a cool time. And we're just going to dig in. You know, for the next several hours, we're going to be digging and talking about uh, how can we interact, how can we encounter God through this particular festival. Now, these are called appointed times, all right? From the beginning of time, God set apart these special days throughout the year. They were called Moed or Moedim, the appointed times. They were practical times, such as when the harvest was gathered and when sacrifices were made for their sin. These days were also a roadmap that marked how and when Jesus would save the world and then also judge the world. So he began the work of saving us when Jesus was conceived during the Festival of Lights. When he was born on the Feast of Trumpets, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacle among us. He identified himself as the Messiah at the Feast of Purim. He died at Passover, rose again on first fruits, walked with his disciples for the 40 days between during this, what we call the counting of the Omer, which ends officially today, then ascended and poured out the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So it's kind of connected there, as you can see. Likewise, scripture tell us his work of future judgment will occur on these appointed times as well, including the second coming, the tribulation, the rapture, the judgment, the wedding of the bride, that's us, and every other event in eternity. 
Feast days, if you think about it like this, are future-facing windows that allow us to peer into the end times and gain prophetic understanding. And as a result, these glimpses or previews of the Great Tribulation often coincide with these feast days. Now, I want to give you a little bit of history here. I love history, so... If you're a history fan, you'll relate. So how these feast days and how the glimpses that I believe we're having now related in the, to two world wars in the last century. The February Revolution in Russia began at Purim in 1917, leading to the Tsar abdicating his throne within a week. Lenin and Trotsky returned from exile just after Passover during the counting of the Omer. Just before Pentecost, the Kronstadt Rebellion began. At Purim, the Bolsheviks were 24,000. By Feast of Trumpets, there were 200,000. Jump ahead to World War II. German troops invade Austria at Purim in 1938. At Feast of Trumpets in 1938, Hitler signed the Munich Agreement, which Czechoslovakia surrendered its border regions' defenses to the Nazis. At Yom Kippur, the Nazis invalidated all German passports held by Jews. And at Purim 1942, Auschwitz was established. And just to add an unusual end times twist, the tribulation, we believe, they believe seven years. Auschwitz was open exactly three and a half years. Mm. So that would have been that midpoint where it switches uh, inside of those seven years. Now, the Civil War did not seem to have these glimpses, these kind of features, but it did start and end on a feast. Jefferson Davis was appointed the president of the Confederate States a week before Purim in 1861. Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant at Passover in 1865. Abraham Lincoln was murdered a few days later on First Fruits or Good Friday during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So as you can see, no matter when you go back through time, these feast days give you have an unusual connection to uh, this, the judgment in the end times. And so it allows us to look, and I believe God does this to prepare us. So when it does come, if we're still, still here on the planet, uh, we will be better prepared. So let's talk about the first thing as we talked about that happens is the Antichrist rises. Well, obviously, the Antichrist doesn't in this one, but Antichrists with a little a. Dear children, this is the last hour, as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. That's First John. Now, the Apostle John encountered his share of Antichrist, <laughs> enduring the cruelty of Herod Antipas and his murderous lineage, as well as seven murderous emperors from Rome, including Dimension, who had him seized and attempted to boil him in a vat of oil in front of the crowds. Witnesses say that the oil didn't burn John, though, so he preached and converted many in the crowd. Enraged, Dominion sent John to the Isle of Patmos to work at hard labor for the rest of his life. He eventually was released, but it was there he received the vision recorded in the book of Revelation, revealing the nature of the Antichrist and the end times. As Jesus chose John to see and hear the future end of the world, so we need a spiritually directed worldview like John's to properly discern the times we're living in. If there were many antichrists in the first century when first John was written, and the last hour has progressed for 2,000 years, 
I think it's safe to assume that many more antichrists should be active in our world. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I just think we need to get a grip on that. As Europe's salvation in the 1930s required Winston Churchill, so we need God-directed wisdom because Antichrists are also flesh and blood and will attain as much authority and power as possible to kill, steal, and destroy. The saying, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it, should compel us to question everyone who desires our applause, our affection, or obedience. 1 John 22 says, Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. In 2020, here's what we've faced so far. If you wonder how your year has been. A viral worldwide pandemic of sickness and death, forced unemployment, the intentional crashing of strong economies, causing unprecedented worldwide famine, rampant fear, quarantines, a loss of civil rights, panic, scarcity, tax against authority and elected leadership, lots of deception, lies and disunity, the likelihood of biological warfare, a foreign subterfuge, angry division, rage, the loss of spiritual discernment, graves filling up worldwide, elected leaders' decisions being directed by unelected medical professionals, the label of people as essential and non-essential, churches closed, physically spiritual authorities stunted and a powerful deception to shift national agendas all right john 10 says this the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy i have come that they may have life and that they have may have it more abundantly so first off a deadly virus definitely has killed hundreds of thousands worldwide about 350,000. but the antichrists are not hungry for lives they're here for power and authority you know, as a little boy, I would wake up each morning and, you know, run downstairs, read the comics in the newspaper. But I couldn't avoid looking down the ever-growing, ever-changing list of death notices from the Vietnam War peering back at me. For the last few months, news reports, news conferences, and special websites all updated to the minute to give us the number of those who have died from this virus. I believe just a serious and unhealthy obsession with death and fear has fallen on our nation, too. Growing up in America has meant to not worry about Antichrist rising. The term Antichrist would likely bring Hitler to mind because of the cruelty and sadistic nature of the Holocaust. But to recognize Hitler and his henchmen as Antichrist is hardly contentious. But genocides have been way too common. There was the Armenian, the Soviet, Eastern European, the Chinese, Japanese, Cambodian, Rwandan. Yeah, and the list goes on. Wars are even more common, and none of them exploded. They all simmered. And, of course... I think we all would agree one simple thing. The due will come one day for the Holocaust of children that has been marched unchecked across the globe for decades. 50 million babies murdered each year. 137,000 every day. It's now approaching two babies killed every second of every day. I was that nod. A Holocaust. So as we look into this perspective, the value of human life has already been stripped away. So it's not hard to begin this journey. So as we get ready for Pentecost, I'm going to take you back through Purim, which would have been the first horseman glimpse review, not the real horseman. And we'll start at Purim coming up next.
Holy Spirit, which is something that I think is definitely about growth because you grow in your walk with Amen. the Holy Spirit. You grow in the way that you approach the Lord and in the way that you allow him to use you. So what do you think about Pentecost and how this applies to us just personally having the Holy Spirit in our lives? You know, and it's so crucial. That's one of the reasons why I, I come on and I really teach on each one of these feasts and, you know, whichever one I'm doing is, is really my favorite, you know, because it just happens that way. And uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially for me, is very impactful. Back in 1980, I was 16 years old so needless to say after nearly 40 years it has been the most dramatic actually in, in August it'll be exactly 40 years for me so I've had a chance to watch how your journey and walk with the Holy Spirit through G with Jesus how that impacts you uh, for your life and so one of the parts as we're going to be talking about this for hours is really how, what do you do now how do you interact how do, how do you cry out to God God I, I'd like to encounter you because what you're asking for for is more of Jesus. Yeah. He's the one encountering him. There's only one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So if you love Jesus, if you love the Father, you might just not, not have come to understand and to encounter the Holy Spirit in the same way. And so that's our prayer for you, that you would just get as much of Jesus as you possibly could. That relationship would just get deeper and deeper until you are literally the bride of Christ and marry him one day in heaven. So uh, it's power, though, and Encountering the Holy Spirit is power, it's intimacy, it's uh, the much faster repentance of your sins, it's the pursuit of God, it's the enablement to do the work of ministry. He said, wait, don't go out, wait for this. So it, it means a whole lot. And today, of course, we spent the first two breaks here, really just an introduction because of the concept of what we're talking about. A little bit different because we're not just jumping right into Pentecost because I do believe that we are looking at a glimpse. And uh, so if the glimpse is the first four horses of of what you read in Revelation. It's not actually the four horses, but just a glimpse of them. We've encountered the things that will happen in, in that day. And so in order to do that, we're at the fourth horse. We can't start at the fourth horse. That would be very confusing. So we're going back and this break, we're going to talk about uh, where it begins, which is Purim. And that is white horses or a white horse. So this is what I believe happened this spring on Purim. Uh, Passover and second Passover and will happen on Pentecost uh, which begins tonight all the way through Sunday and then on and on and on during uh, this very condensed preview of the first four seals and horsemen. If you haven't been listening from the beginning, I will post all of this up on our, our blog and podcast because you really do have to listen through on this one to, otherwise you'll probably lose where in the world we are. So, well, Let's go back and just look. The first seal and the white horse of Purim. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest now interestingly enough why do i believe that the white horse's glimpse started on perm perm is the only feast day specifically about a crown a king and a conqueror that is bent on conquest it was during Purim, now think back, if you will, in early March, that you probably became aware of this pandemic, its potential danger to America, and what our plans were to respond to it. This virus is called Corona, which means crown. The Hebrew word Nazar means crown, authority, and set apart. This biblical year of 5780 is all about authorities and crowns. The rider of the white horse is given a crown and carries a bow with no arrows because this confrontation is more about conquering than it is about fighting. 
What was the effect of the Sealer Horseman on our world back in March beginning? Well, the virus has affected over 5 million people, killed over 340, so it's very deadly. But this pandemic isn't about a virus as much as it's about changes to crowns or authority. Every healthy person, not just the sick, has been set apart or quarantined, that's that naser word, for the first time in history. That action was initiated not by elected officials, but by unelected health officials. So the authority structure was changed. The crown, in other words, changed hands. Even though the elected were part of it, the, it was initiated from down here. I would just say beware. Unig- expected leaders with unproven solutions leaders lead with purpose and an intended destination conquerors on the other thing only seek to win so they don't properly consider or count the cost they ride white horses they claim to bring hope they pretend well but in the end their guesses prove fatal always have the virus has conquered every nation on the earth like nothing else including either world war authorities across the whole earth has been shifted to respond to a virus as our president shifted from receiving medical counsel to following the guidelines they established, despite their direct conflict to economic policies. So who rode the white horse? Historically, in both world wars, there were multiple antichrists who sought authority and crowns and whose actions were murderous and often genocidal. In World War I, such men as Rasputin, Tsar Nicholas, Lenin, Trotsky, Kaiser Wilhelm, the three Pashas, Abdul Hamid II. In World War II, there was Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Hirohito, Tojo, Mussolini, lots of those names. These men are all dead now, but evil has not lessened, has it? (laughs) Because it has spiritual roots, so it can't be defeated in the flesh alone. Most people recognize Hitler as an antichrist and the systematic, brutal murder of six million Jews, including more than one million children, is a very clear picture of the tribulation to come. But will we recognize an antichrist if he desires not to be known? Who is riding this white horse? If this is what, if this is a glimpse, who's riding the white horse? Well, the current pandemic was birthed in Wuhan, China, where communist leaders have proven to be deceitful, dangerous, and the greatest persecutors of the church in the world today. Strong evidence also points to the virus being manipulated in a lab there. Uh, President uh, Xi Jinping's persecution of Christianity alone would equally they easily earn him the uh, title of an antichrist. But add the government's deliberate actions regarding corona and the title is very well deserved. But that's not all. There are many heads impacting the corona, the crown authority structure. You have Dr. Anthony Fauci who's become the face and voice of authority. It was his counsel to shut down the economies of the world and suspend the individual rights of Americans. He's headed the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease over 31 years, $4.5 billion annual budget. Both the CDC and World Health Organization also forefront a decision-making. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been the primary research funding group for coronaviruses and invested billions over the last 20 years. I'm not going to cast anybody there as um, wearing crowns. I'll let that be whoever God reveals in in one day to the world. But uh, social media giants are blocking those who protest, pulling top-tier credentialed scientists, physicians, our president, anti-lockdown organizers, declaring events that defy government's guidance aren't allowed. This, despite repeat, repeatedly changing findings, recommendations. So the, the, the issue here is it's really hard sometimes to just go, oh, you're an antichrist, you're an antichrist, and you're an antichrist. 
every worldwide organization desires a worldwide government structure and a world without the courage, bravery, and Christian principles that uphold our republic. Not a very inspiring or hopeful world, but many antichrists have ruled nations around the world. But one of the primary reasons the nations haven't fallen is God's hand is on America. And I'll spell you spare you any enraged oratory because I realize that at this point everything that can be felt or said has been made into a meme on Facebook hundreds of times so that's why it's no point even trying to point fingers we can look at the past and judge but trying to understand our own a little more complicated but the point being Purim was when this began and the question is why would it begin on Purim if all of that is true why we'll look at that next something that a lot of people haven't studied or looked into what this means personally for us. Yeah, and that's why we come on and uh, talk and share and just engage you so you can encounter God, hopefully encounter Jesus more and more every single day, but especially around these appointed times that he's called. We're looking at kind of a different perspective. We haven't actually jumped into Pentecost yet because I believe uh, one of the things we've seen this year in this very unusual year of ours is a glimpse of the end times that we're getting this. We've seen an unusual thing all across the face of the earth and very much like World War One, World War II, we're getting this glimpse and it just so happened in all of these that uh, when things began, they began on Purim. So we're looking back at Purim, which is early March, March 8th, and we that was when this coronavirus, which means crown, came on the scene. And so the question is, why uh, would these things happen on Purim, whether it's World War I or World War II, both significant events starting on Purim? Well, it's the only feast day specifically about a crown, mentioned that before, a king, and a conqueror bent on conquest. The rabbinical holiday of Purim remembers when the Jews of Persia faced an evil conspiracy and extermination at the hands of an evil man named Haman, who was the descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. From their earliest days, God commanded Israel to blot out the very name of the Amalekites, but the Jews mostly ignored this command. Israel had to defeat them to enter the Promised Land, but never finished the job, and that failure still haunts them as Amalek's bloodline included the Romans, the Nazis, and the Stalinists. So it was a bad call not to do what he said. A Jewish girl named Esther became queen of Persia. Uh, there's your crown. But no one knew she was Jewish. Soon after, the evil Haman was elevated to a place of authority. There's your crown again. By a king and demanded all to bow to him. So you have a crown giving authority. Again, fits in very well with that whole concept. A Jewish man named Mordecai, who was the uncle of... Of Queen Esther's refused because he could only bow to God. So Haman hatched a plot for the king to not only kill him, but to order all the Jews to be killed in the entire kingdom on one day. This was a massive kingdom. So a conqueror bent on conquest. So again, unique in all of the feasts of the Lord. Purim. Uh, Esther revealed her Jewishness to the king, asked him to intervene, and he had Haman and his ten sons killed. Mordecai was given his authority. So again, that crown giving authority. The king signed a new edict, granting the Jews in every city the right to assemble, protect themselves, specifically to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality who might attack them. So you got that conqueror bent on conquest again. The Jews won a great victory, and Esther eventually became the mother of Darius II. He would carry her Jewish bloodline and later help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now remember, early on I told you we're looking at horses. We're also looking at seals. 
Here's an interesting one because the lamb, Jesus, is opening the seals. And that means that when we deal with these things, it's not all bad news and destruction. Whatever happens ends with God's will being done. Well, the first seal from God actually comes to cancel a bad seal. One seal condemns the Jews, another seal empowers them. Esther 3.12, they wrote out in script all Haman's orders to the king's satraps. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. So you got that seal. But then by the end of the book, now write another decree in the king's name and behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. Seal it with a king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with this ring can be revoked. So you have these seals again and these seals, one tries to kill them, but the other is their salvation. Now, just to get you to understand perm history, Nazi attacks against Jews were often coordinated with Jewish festivals. In Poland, on Purim in 42, 10 Jews were hanged to avenge the hanging of Haman's 10 sons. The Nazis murdered over 5,000 Jews, mostly children, in the Minsk ghetto that day. All of the victims were shot and buried alive on Purim. In 1943 on Purim Eve, over 100 Jewish doctors and their families were shot. And oddly enough, remember that bloodline of Amalek? The Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, was suddenly paralyzed on Purim in 1953, died four days later. Why do we watch out for leaders that don't immediately present themselves as evil? Adolf Hitler banned the observance of Purim early on and ironically stated in a speech in 1944 that if the Nazis were defeated, the Jews would celebrate a second Purim. In ancient Persia, the ten sons of Haman were hanged on his gallows. In 1946, at Nuremberg, ten convicted Nazis were hung during the Days of Awe, right before Yom Kippur. In an odd bit of irony, Hermann Goering, an 11th Nazi sentenced to hang, committed suicide that morning in what was a striking parallel to Haman's 11th child, a daughter, who also committed suicide. Why do we watch out for leaders that don't immediately present themselves as evil? You may not know, but Adolf Hitler... He obviously believed Jews were inferior and a threat to purity and community, but in public speeches and in Mein Kampf, which he wrote in prison in 23, Hitler claimed to be a Christian. <laughs> Amazingly enough, the Nazi party promoted their version of positive Christianity, even described Jesus as an Aryan fighter. Talk about an abomination. It would be the Antichrist Hitler's attempts to identify with Jesus. That is an abomination. Every Nazi belt buckle was embossed with the motto, God uh, will go mit uns, which is God is with us. But in his private diaries, Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels wrote that Hitler was a fierce opponent of the Vatican and Christianity, though he forbid him to leave the church for tactical reasons. Uh, Hitler also predicted a general European war that would result in the extermination of the Jewish race in Germany, yet not one nation took him at his word when the persecution, internments, and Aryanization swept across Germany in the 30s, even despite eyewitness testimonies ending up on the shores so when we see evil at a distance our tendency is to accuse ourselves of being judgmental when the spirit of deception helps evil make its way in close we're a victim not so unlike the ones we ignored so that's part of the reason for sharing and looking through history and then looking in our own day at Purim when this coronavirus pops up and you see new faces popping up in authority so I'll leave you this Purim with this thought in Revelation 3 take your crown back See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you've little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your 
crown and the promise, the one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's Purim. We also had Passover, the second feast, which would be the second horse, second seal. We'll talk about that next. So we're talking about Pentecost. We are. And this is about the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. meeting everyday people, the fact that the Lord wants to fill us with the Holy Spirit. How to encounter the fire of God, how to get the power that God wants to give you. That's kind of the conversation because it's a unique Pentecost. It was a unique Purim, Passover, and everything else because of this coronavirus pandemic. So uh, one of the things I believe God said was that we're looking at a glimpse of the four horsemen this end times. Same as we did in World War One and World War Two, It's a very unusual time, and so we're just kind of making that case going through each of these. So we're gonna, we went back through Purim, which would have been the first horse, a glimpse, not the real thing. And now we're going to look at Passover, and then second Passover, and then we're going to kind of open up Pentecost in that way. And then also just help you understand what Pentecost is and why it is we just celebrate this uh, amazing feast day to encounter God. So let's jump back. We're going to go back to early April, April 8th, which was Passover. And, of course, if Purim was when this whole coronavirus thing came to light, what happened at Easter? Do you remember? And what's the significance of why it was at Passover? Well, this is what I believe happened at Passover. And this very condensed preview of the end times. The second seal in the red horse. Uh, then another horse came out. This is Revelation 6. A fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. All right. Peace is taken and people made to kill each other. The instrument is a large sword. If you'll notice in the judgments of Revelation, you see the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Revelation 1.16, coming out of his mouth, sharp double-edged sword. Revelation 2, I'll come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 19, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So Jesus is the word made flesh. His judgments are words. His breath is a weapon. Likewise, the devil was a liar from the very beginning. Just as he deceived one third of the angels into following him with his words and deceived Adam and Eve with his words, his warfare is with words. Spiritual swords are not for stabbing. Words penetrate, separating soul from spirit. So how do you take the peace from the whole earth? Lies and fear. There was a significant shift that happened at Passover or Easter in early April. What seemed temporary and manageable about this whole corona stuff became unstoppable. The rule of law was placed in the hands of the medical community hierarchy to determine our response. We were called essential workers or suddenly labeled non-essential. Businesses everywhere were forced to close. Fear and panic were mandated. Everything up until then really been optional. And Passover Easter is no longer optional how we were to respond. People have been made afraid to leave their homes or visit relatives, told to wear a mask. Relatives could not even go to the hospital with a loved one, even if they were dying. There was rage and hatred and people reporting each other. About 8,000 Americans die every day from disease. Some are scarier and others are more dangerous. And confusing those two terms are 
unbelievably tragic. Lots of things are scary, but aren't dangerous. Some things are dangerous, but aren't scary. Unprecedented lockdowns of economies were accepted with little question because of fear and panic and misdiagnosing danger. As a result, critical screenings were prevented to detect cancers, cholesterol, and diabetes. Meanwhile, infant mortality, opiate addiction, alcoholism, and domestic violence soared. Irrational fear trumped real danger and caused unprecedented job loss, despair, recession, and a lack of needed resources, which I believe will certainly cause more deaths than COVID. Every day that employment suffers, the economic wounds become more deadly all across the world. We know 2020 is a biblical year, 5780. The number 80 in Hebrew is pay. It means mouth, speech, and breath. This coronavirus pandemic is spread by breath, which can kill. But it's the words spoken that take away peace. Lies and deception about how dangerous it could be to everyone, how it was spread. The only response permitted was quarantine and closing the economy. There was no peace, and I'm sure you felt that. A spirit of fear doesn't, just to be clear, what a spirit of fear is. A spirit of fear doesn't make you pull your hand back from an open flame so as not to be burned. That's just wisdom or or, uh, or experience. A spirit of fear makes you pull your hand back from an unlit candle. A spirit of fear is something very different. What does it look like when you've given yourself over to be controlled? Here's Romans 1. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve those who practice them. That's Romans 1, 28 through 32. There's a lot of well, there's words in there that probably describe some of the things that are in our hearts. And all of that comes when we're pushed. Not when we make a choice, but when the devil pushes, especially that spirit of fear comes into our life, we make bad decisions. So that's what happened, I believe, on that second feast day of Passover. That's not all. We're going to look at what's the church's response. What were we supposed to do on this holiday of Passover and Easter? Pentecost, and you're talking about this sword, meaning what comes out of our mouth. Right, because we're back at, we're not up to Pentecost yet, but it is Pentecost uh, tonight beginning, so we're here to talk about Pentecost, but we haven't got there yet because we're talking about if these, um, what happened over these last few months was a glimpse of the end times, and are we seeing these little glimpses, and so we're all the way up to Passover and talking about what happens with the second sword, the the red horseman, that comes out and he has a sword, and the, but Jesus always says a sword coming out of his mouth, so that means you and I have a sword in that sense, the word of God should be coming out of our mouth and it should be powerful. And what do we do and how do we deal with the things that come at us, especially this coronavirus thing? You know, that sword is also in your fingertips. If you're on social media, what comes out of your mouth, it's also all the, (laughs) and that can be a very dangerous thing. So what is our response in in the time of this uh, craziness going on? 
Here is Isaiah 54. Behold, I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So God is our defender, and he's given us a tongue that can deal when we have to deal with some things we don't want to. Isaiah 49, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom my I will display my splendor. So, in a sense, if we think about this, the authority of whoever's carrying this sword is the person that is in authority in that conversation or in, in, in the sense of our government and our churches, our pastors. Who carries the sword is so important. That's why in America we are a republic and we have elections for these things. But there is, we also had a constitution, a Bill of Rights, to protect us. Just like in, in when you have a church, you have a certain rules of order that bring things in your home, your family, your father and mother and children. There's certain rules that, that, that cause that to function, that sword that's coming out of the mouth. What if we allow the government to make our personal choices and determine how we care for ourselves here in America? What if they then keep us safe but unfree? fail to safeguard our rights and close our businesses without legal basis. The Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that our health care decisions are private, personal, not determined by the government. The Constitution was written to restrain the government from determining what is essential and non-essential for individuals. So they could not limit them to whoever serves, enhances, maintains, and removes obstacles to exercise their power. America is a wonderful, beautiful place. Uh, but we also have to guard it. If we are caretakers with this sword, that's part of our job. The sword sets the agenda. Legal governments are elected to keep us free from tyrants, not viruses, because decisions are colored by politics. What if the government experts are wrong? Reducing immunity by face masks and quarantining hundreds of millions of healthy people for months makes no medical sense. What if more credible scientists and physicians disagree with the government than agree, but they silence or listen only to those who tell them what they want to hear? stoking fear because it produces compliance could america be turned into a trembling fearful people in an instant i didn't think so but could we forget that the news we watch is mostly fake the the media thrives on lying and the medical insurance industry has long fallen into corruption could americans shielded by a constitution and bill of rights trade those rights for heavy-handed government oversight without consent could a generation far removed from its own birth forget the warning of one of its founders, Patrick Henry, that the Constitution is not an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It's an instrument for the people to restrain the government, lest they come to dominate our lives and interests. Well, I will certainly never question how quickly this nation could fall. We say it's one nation under God. You know what? We are those caretakers as the church. If we have this holy spirit power that we talk about then then we are the most powerful force on the earth here's what psalm 149 says about us let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds may the praise of god be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings so you know we have a responsibility in america as christians 
when you talk about this second seal that happened at uh, in at Passover, Jesus opens these seals. So it's not all bad news. It's not just the horsemen riding out bringing destruction, but it's God's will being done. So what is the end result? It's the biblical year 5780. The number 80 in Hebrew is pay. The 17 letter is is the same thing, which symbolizes overcoming the enemy and complete victory. God's already set in line for us to have complete victory. Where are the two places at Passover? Matthew 27. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone, posting a guard. The guard, meanwhile, fell on their faces as dead men. Jesus walked out of the grave with the keys of death in Hades. He ascended 40 days later so he could release the baptism of the Holy Spirit onto his church. The other seal, Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Salvation is that seal. So one of the reasons of coming in, just going, not just starting at Pentecost, but looking through this whole time that we've had over these last three months is to say, listen, we as a church are, have a responsibility to the people that we elect. We have it to each other, to our families. And if if this is what has happened, then what is the responsibilities? And I'm going to, because there's so much to talk about, we're going to break that down into one more team. One more important thing is where two or more are gathered, he said, I am there. We're going to look at that concept of the power of the meeting together of Christians. Some churches, they are meeting again, sure. but then some churches are still closed. And what do you think about that? Is this, you know, Satan kind of trying to get in the way or what's going on? Well, we're looking back through, uh, of course, before we get to Pentecost, you had Purim, we had Passover, second Passover. And then so we're looking at the possibility that is this whole pandemic thing we're looking at. Was this a glimpse or is it a glimpse of those four horsemen that one day, the same thing he kind of showed us in World War One and World War Two, and look at Antichrist and how he came against the church. One of the things he did in Germany was definitely shutting down the church. He, he, he tends to do that. He does that in China right now, trying to shut down the church. And so a lot of churches, of course, have celebrated saying, you know what, we can still meet. We've got this and that and we're growing and it's a good thing. Well, the question is, so we're up to the second horseman, the red one, and he's got a sword coming about out of his mouth, taking peace from the earth. And one of the interesting things that happened then, that happened right around Easter, Passover, is churches went from, okay, we agree we're not going to meet to no, we can't meet. And at that point, you couldn't even go in and have a meeting together, two or three people yeah. to meet together. It was a very unusual thing, certainly unprecedented. So the Bible says where two or three are gathered, I am there. What is that about? Well, here's what I would say to it is the church cannot shirk its calling when the world becomes dark. Here's what the Bible says. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things for now you know what is restraining, that is the Antichrist, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is Second Thessalonians 2. See, the Holy Spirit in Christian is helping restrain lawlessness, which is iniquity, disobedience, sin, violation of law, or wickedness. The fact that we're 
on the earth right now. That's what he does in us and through us, sometimes through leadership and through politics. So we must speak out so that the blind have a chance to see truth. If the devil or the Antichrist can remove the church from the forefront, it allows iniquity and lawlessness to rise up. Here's the rest of that scripture from Thessalonians. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the workings of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who will perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they uh, all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So when you talk about these end times and these scriptures looking at the end, uh, deception and this uh, delusion, and I got to tell you, uh, if you look at those last three months, you probably have Facebook friends or social media friends, and you've probably gone down the line thinking, why are they thinking that way? Why are they talking? Why are they acting that way? Well, the Greek word okeo means to indwell as the Holy Spirit does in a believer when we get saved. It comes from oikos, which is a house. So he resides in us. But there's another way that the Holy Spirit interacts. Why did Antichrist shut down meetings for the church, even the staff gathering at first? Because God is in the midst of his people when they gather together. He does that to bring judgment in a matter. Here's what Matthew 18 says. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he'll not hear, take with you one or two more by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on any on earth concerning anything that they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three for where listen there for where two or three are gathered together in my name i'm there in the midst of them so you see god has given us an opportunity a very unique thing is that when we come together he does something that he doesn't do when we're alone which is nice this principle comes from deuteronomy 19 one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sins that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established so when we come together we are witnesses we have power uh, it's called uh, a bait din, a house of judgment. It requires at least three men because two had to agree for justice to be observed and legitimate God-given authority to function on earth. No one ever was to be judged by the word of only one witness. And so a lot of the things of this whole pandemic that we've dealt with seem like they're just coming from a lack of that. But in John 8, it says, Jesus uses the same verse to establish the two witnesses agree to the fact that he is who claims he be. He's talking about himself on the light of the world. The Pharisees say, you can't say that by yourself. You need these two witnesses. And he says, Jesus says, in your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm the one who testifies for yourself, for myself. My other witnesses are the Father 
who sent me. So he's relating to himself as being God because the Father sent him and is relating. So all of that says to this thing, God established the church to impact the world, not to cower to it. He wants to fill us and get us close to others so he will fill them too. Apart, we are limited in what we can do for each other and how we can bring justice for others. God comes in a tangible way in a setting where we're gathered. And I, I would just challenge you to ask this. I'm so thankful for those times when you go in the hospital. We both had various procedures done and they're wearing a mask and they're, they've clean, cleaned everything. You worked for an orthodontist for a yeah. season. It's very, all that is good. But so let me ask you as Christians, who are you? What is the power that you take into the world? Because I have to ask myself this question. Can I imagine Jesus walking on the earth with a mask on or social distancing, any of these things? And, and you know, where, where we're talking about the sick and the hurting and all that, obviously that's a wonderful thing. But for the rest of us, we, as Christians who are now, who are told we couldn't get together and be together, so many are falling into lines as, as if that is the standard rather than what God has said, mm-hmm. rather than us following the example of Jesus, we're just doing our own thing and or doing the words of someone that don't have the power of Jesus so mm-hmm. or the authority of Jesus. So, um, we're looking at this from an end times perspective as we're working our way towards Pentecost, which begins tonight. We're at Passover right now because we're uh, looking back at what God has done and and how these four horsemen come out. Now, one more look at Passover with the spirit of fear. And I just want to challenge you to really think about what this second horseman did. The, he had the power to take peace from the earth. And as you look at the earth right now, especially America, is there peace or is there something else? Is there a chance that this second horseman that we saw a glimpse of him, not the real one from the end times, but a glimpse. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. We'll look at that next. It's Corey Haynes. I am here talking to our general manager about Pentecost, which this is something that is, it still applies for today. This is something that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts and our That's lives. Right. It's not just for yesterday, long ago. Actually, Pentecost begins tonight. Some people will celebrate it tonight through tomorrow on all the way through Saturday. Some will on Pentecost Sunday on Sunday. However you slice it, it is a day and a, a moment and a point in time that God has said, come and celebrate. It's when he wants you to draw near so he can fill you with his power so he can pour out on you so it's a an amazing day a, a beautiful appointed time a beautiful feast of the lord and uh we're giving you a very different perspective i always teach uh, in probably in unusual ways and usually i look at each festival according to the year that we're in we're in the year 5780 and we're going to do that uh, some as we get to that one as well but right now we're looking back over since march Purim, passover second passover and pentecost those are the four feasts and do they line up with this little glimpse of the end times of the four horsemen and are we seeing something is this what you've been going through more than just a bunch of people and politicians and medical people making strange decisions in the world suffering and a virus attacking does this come from somewhere else is this bigger than what you thought it might be? So uh, one of the places and ways to look at that is through each one of these horsemen and seals. And the second horseman would have coordinated with Passover. And what the, the second Passover, one of the second horsemen brought was the power to take peace from the earth. 
And, you know, boy, that one just kind of stood out to me. So my question to look at in this moment is, why were the second seal and the horseman at Passover if they were? The meaning of Hebrew letters comes from the first time they're used in Scripture. The first use of the letter Pei, that 80, 5780 in the Torah, is Gen- Genesis 4.11, when Cain kills Abel. It says this, now you are cursed because of the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So the mouth was the, the grave. So mouth is a grave. There's death and curses and a last breath. Uh, so Passover this year was very significant because pay is the first letter of Pesach, which is Passover. And it's all about death and graves. So we knew last year coming in that this year would be filled with a lot of death and graves. But of course, we had no idea. I couldn't even comprehend it. But as I began looking from another perspective from the end times, I looked at the second horseman and said, the power to take peace from the earth, that is the spirit of fear, if there ever was. Gideon was raising an army of only those called by God. And here's what he said, now announced to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 left while 10,000 remained. You know, the spirit of fear causes you to not walk in the calling of God. Yeah. But to back. You ever had that happen where you just couldn't, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. Definitely. That's the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear cost Israel the promised land and the right to live up to their calling. Here's what it said in Deuteronomy, but you were when they were standing at the edge of the promised land after they were brought out of Egypt and got all prepared for a, over a year, but you were unwilling to go up. Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and they're taller than us. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites, the giants there. And I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God is going before you, will fight for you as he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father, carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 1. Now, I'm bringing this to you because is this what's going on on our earth? Because as you look at people, maybe you, is the spirit of fear become the dominant force in your life because if you are a christian if you are the church of the living god this is something you've got to look at god is raising up an army not just without fear themselves but those who can inspire others listen to deuteronomy 20 for the lord your god is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory then the officers added is anyone afraid or faint-hearted let them go home so his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too And when the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. See, here's the thing. They were going to go into war. And the last thing they wanted is people that were terrified because it made everybody else scared. And Mm. the last thing you want is people surrendering to the enemy. You want them to fight and kill and destroy the enemy. And so what we've seen in this particular season in time is the church, Christians, people in general being so covered in fear. What motivates our actions? Safety? Wisdom? Obedience? Well, we'll all discover soon. I don't want to throw stones, but if you've run with a footman and they've wearied you, how can you contend with the horses? If in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? See, the thing is, if if these if this little test has wearied you, how are you going to make it to the next step? Mm. That's why there may be a time where you have to choose differently. Is it caution, wisdom, or is it fear? Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on 
my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Everyone experiences fear, but there's a fear that literally overcomes you that comes from the demon, the spirit of fear. The spirit is opposed to God and his kingdom. If you entertain him, he will control your heart and mind, your courage and decision making. The Bible says this in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, whatever things are just and pure, whatever things are lovely or good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. It also goes on to say in Revelation 21, and this one's what really always pushes my button and, and concerns me. But the cowardly, that word is delios. It means dread, timid, fearful, or faithless. If you ever wondered, he said the fearful, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And that particular word, Delios, shows up in two other places. It's when Jesus is with the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And we've been on that during the midst of a storm. It can be a little bit scary. And so they all woke him up and said, what, what, what in the world? And he woke up and he got up and he said, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? But they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Also, it appears in Hebrews 10, as Christians, we're called to suffer and never adjust our calling to fear. But here's what it says. Remember those early days after you received the light that is Jesus, when you endured in a great conflict of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And other times you stood by side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he has promised. I believe in the whole heart that one of the greatest concerns over this entire pandemic is if the church decides to be fearful, if the church does stops being the church. You know, we can't uh, hide in homes. We can't hide behind masks. We can't do any other things because we are the church of the living God. We've got to be different. We've got to stand out. Coming up next, we are going to look at that third horseman that's for second Passover and it deals with the economy and this is getting ready to talk about Pentecost as we prepare and examine the precious. Right now, we're looking at it from perspective of this, this whole coronavirus thing that we've been through for these months. Is this a glimpse of the end times? Or not not the end times, obviously, but is it a glimpse like World War One and World War Two, where you saw these Antichrists rising up? And it's only important if it's true, because then that means that the stuff that you've been going through is initiated from a different realm, not just from the earth, but are Antichrists involved in what you've been going through? And if so, how are you responding? And are you careful things like fear and things uh, how have you dealt with that so we're up to the third horse the, we're looking at what happens in the end times which will be the four horses of revelation and um so i believe at second passover which was the 8th of may was so the same month we're in about uh three weeks ago or so so this is what i i believe happened in this condensed preview of the end times third seal was the black horse when the lamb opened the third seal i heard the living 
the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. What is that all about? Well, by second Passover in early May, it was becoming clear that the economies of the world had been nearly destroyed. The entire world faces the worst recession since the Great Depression. The IMF described the decline in our GDP, that's a lot of letters, in nations as the worst since the Great Depression. The stock market lost 30%. America, the employment rate went from the lowest ever to 30 million on the rolls. 40% of low-income Americans lost their jobs due to the pandemic. Oil prices crashed, then turned negative for the first time ever. That's unusual. Countries on lockdown with no travel, industrial production and sales plummeted. So that's where we've been. By second Passover, you have to ask yourself, is that what this is about, this third seal? So in the end times, how are we going to recognize it? I believe God gives us these glimpses so we can understand without thinking it has to become so horrible. And we don't even realize it's happening before it does. Why would such a thing happen on second Passover? If you're not familiar with Second Passover, it's not a hobbit holiday. It's about what's precious, our needs, and supernatural provision. Second Passover isn't a holiday for everyone to observe. It's a do-over 30 days after Passover for those who missed out on observing Passover on the regular date because they were unclean due to touching a dead body for those on a journey that kept them away from the temple. For most of us, when we deal with death... We do it when a loved one dies. So we're dealing with love. The one thing more precious than anything else. Song of Songs, chapter 8, has a, a verse that is just so powerful. It says, place me. And now I should note, there, we're talking also when these horses go out, Jesus opens a seal. So there's a seal. And then there's these horses. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy and yielding as a grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So the seal here, this third seal, is the test to see who and what you love the most. You will be left to pursue the harlot of greed or be sealed with the love of Jesus. And the end times is so significant, and I think it is today as well. Jewish tradition sets aside one full week for Shiva or mourning, then another 30 days when you should you can't cut your hair, shave, or wear new clothes, and you also don't attend social events or religious celebrations. And, of course, there are longer seasons of mourning for closer loved ones. But second Passover, back before it was instituted, the date was when the Israel, Israelites were 30 days from Egypt, and they started to get hungry, and God provides them meat and bread, which is, of course, like the Passover meal, but this time it's quail and manna. It's also the time when Jesus fed the 5,000 with a little fish and bread. Now, you have that part in this prophetic word in Revelation, do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, I believe in this whole journey we've been through in these last three months, it's about guarding your anointing. What is this oil and wine anyways? Well, holy oil, obviously, and wine, you can dilute them. At a time of economic chaos, the temptation for someone would be to damage or dilute the wine or oil to create more wine or oil. You know, in our world of uh, when you don't have much money and you have that little soap 
uh, on your sink and you're plunging it down. Some people will try to make it go a little extra. They'll put a little water in there. Dilute it. Yeah, and dilute it, right? And then yeah. you squirt yourself and it shoots water everywhere instead of soap. Well, <laughs> same thing happened with wine and oil. But the problem is when you dilute things, it makes them worthless. Mm. Impurities in the temple for either wine or oil. Uh, it's impure and it's worthless to sell and it would taste bad. It's worth less, literally. One way you dilute, dilute oil is you mix last year's olive oil with a new fresh oil. See, there's nothing comparable to spending time with God. This is what it means. Otherwise, the prophetic voice is silent within us. So we're tested when we have less, always. Wheat, barley, wine, and oil are the same materials that Solomon traded with the king of Tyre when he was working to acquire materials to build God's house. See, we're now his house, and we supply, so the work can be done there. Hard times tests our giving within the church. There are harvesting festivals, so all of these are, but especially Passover and especially Pentecost. So grain, oil, and wine are part of offering the first fruits to God. So... First, there's Passover, then first fruits or Resurrection Day. You count the Omer, and then the new barley can be eaten as you journey to second Passover, and then Pentecost when the wine, when the um, wheat is ready. So Leviticus says, describes it like this: On the day you wave the sheaf, you got to sacrifice a burnt offering, a lamb a year old without defect. It's grain offering, two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil. So all of this is part of their probably just think of them uh, killing animals but there's a lot more to it so you've got flour you've got olive oil and a hint of wine all of this is a drink offering so until you do all this you can't eat any bread or make bread from that new barley or wheat crop until the very day you bring this offering to your god so here's the thing anointing is powerful here's what psalm 104 says he makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their heart. See, anointing is powerful. Anointing also exalts. Psalm 45 says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So can I just ask you that really hard question? In the midst of all of this, have you had joy? See, the church is God's anointed. By early May, churches were demanding to be able to be open again. Why? Well, they were still being called non-essential. Some are still are in some states. But that was beginning to change by then. The seal and the third horseman bring famine and the opportunity for the church to live out their anointing. Churches and Christians rising up to do the work of ministry without fear. How do we handle that which is precious? When you've waited 50 days, which is from the resurrection day to Pentecost, and the blessing finally comes, in this case, the wheat harvest, it should make you want to share, right? How do so this is probably one of the more convicting things, but how do we handle what is holy in times of economic chaos? The harvest of barley already happened at Passover and only 30 days passed, so it's not scarcity, but the fear of scarcity causing hoarding was part of what that verse was talking about. When we hoard, we hurt others, especially those who can't afford to stock up. So do we also withhold the word because we're afraid? And I'm talking corona and masks and quarantines. Is what is the Antichrist having an impact on what the church is doing? We talked about the seals too. 
whenever Jesus uh, opens the seals, the horse gets released, but so does the seal. Here is, uh, in this one, it's interesting, from 2 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is the seal. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has something very profound and amazing, but we have to step into it. I think anytime you go into Revelation or you talk about prophecy or end times, you just got to come humbly and just say, nobody knows. Absolutely nobody. I certainly don't. So what we have to do is just say, God, help us to understand. Give us clarity. And so that's why I've taken so much time to get to this point, because if we are in this pandemic since March, I've been looking at a glimpse of the end times and these four horsemen of Revelation or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's obviously not the end times, but if we're doing this and we're in a season just like World War One and World War Two, And if you notice in each one of those, uh, there was the Spanish flu in World War One that uh, killed a lot just like today uh, in our day. In World War II, you had Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that devastation that came from the after effects of the the bombs. uh, It was just ridiculous. There's nothing like that. And here we are shutting down the whole world because of coronavirus has a crown in it. And so there's a whole lot that led up to saying, okay, are we looking at the four horses? So this is not a horse you would like. Uh, and I wanted to give you all of that because if we're good, uh, one of the things I love about what we got to do today is each of the songs as we get ready to talk, talk about a horseman kind of summed it up. And for me, my attitude has been since March, look, God's got this. I'm not going to, I'm the wrong guy to say, go wear a mask because I'm going to say, I'm going to walk with Jesus on this one. Okay. Because that's just how I am. But when we get to this fourth horseman, because he's so bad, he's so frightening you need to know that God has got this. And that's why I wanted to give you all the buildup. So if you haven't listened through the others, take the time to go back. We'll put it on our blog. We'll put it on our app and on our website so you can listen and go back and take the last two hours. And it didn't take, obviously, two hours of talking. But this one is the pale horse. All right, the fourth horse. It's called the smell of death. That's what it's this one. So I believe... A condensed preview of this seal and horseman, the fourth, will happen on Pentecost. That begins tonight, runs through Sunday. But then also, it's Shavuot or uh, Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, depending on what you want to call it. But this is when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai. I expect the effects to continue through about mid-August. July 9th is the 17th of the month of Tammuz. July 30th is the 9th of Av. Both dates observe multiple tragedies in the history of Israel. As you get into the summer, rough times. And so, and we even begin to talk about this in relation to Pentecost. Realize that God is in the midst here. It's not just something that we're to uh, let you know some bad things, but... There are some profoundly uh, pouring out of God's anointing that's important. So here's what the Bible says in Revelation 6 about the fourth seal and the pale horse. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague by all the wild beasts of the earth. Now that's talking about the end times. That's what I'm talking about right now. We're looking at a glimpse. so You're not going to see that devastation. In the end times, this horseman will likely kill several billion souls. That's a quarter of the earth. 
just as in the first three glimpses were much more limited than the end times will be, this condensed preview of this fourth will be on a much smaller scale. Now, the first three previews where we've been since March accounted for about 350,000 deaths worldwide. I believe we could see that number triple or quadruple as this fourth horseman uh, if this release is right now. In that verse, the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts, the word kill means to kill in any way, to destroy, to allow to perish, to hear that, to allow to perish, you just let them die, to deprive of spiritual life or procure eternal misery in hell. It's a tough word. Meaning this horseman isn't doing a new thing as much as greatly increasing and ten continuing with the first three did. It's a terrifying picture for those on the earth in that day. The color of the horse is pale, ashen, or green is the word, to reflect the sickly power of a corpse. That's why you don't want to ride this horse. When the, so if this horse is dead and ridden by death and being followed by Hades, the abode of the dead, this is not a good horseman. When we meet death... During the 10th plague in Egypt, he is called the destroyer and the death angel. When God sees the blood on the doorpost, he covers or protects those houses. Death, as we know it, has temporary authority over all of creation to rule over it when it is appointed for them to encounter death. That's you, me, and everyone else. In the garden, sin and death first entered earth and robbed man of his covering of glory. Jesus becomes our covering. Death is on a collision course with judgment. So first, before we even talk about it, let's talk about death. Here's Corinthians 15. Christ has now risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Ain't nobody going to miss him either, for he has put all things under his feet. Revelation 1. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. That's Jesus. Also, Revelation 20, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Before you do anything in the end times, you got to think about the fact that Jesus wins. And if Jesus wins, we win. So we're looking at, if we're looking at four horsemen here, the last quarter. Pentecost begins the outpouring of the fourth seal of the horsemen, which is to continue and increase what the three horsemen did. Kill by sword, famine, and plague. And then you add in wild beasts as a bonus. So what I want you to do is look beyond America. You've seen how this coronavirus and all the fear and panic has affected America. But oh my goodness, the world's in much worse shape. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. What's the condition of the world after these three first horses? Historic, historic locust plagues and drought have already destroyed the crops. Shockwaves of a global food crisis have hit the world. First, a health crisis. Then comes an economic crisis from shutting down the world's economy. Not just our economy. Everybody's got shut down, causing job layoffs and poverty. Now, every aspect of the food industry is somewhat broken as the third wave arrives with greater catastrophe, a collapsed food supply. The worldwide starvation rate is expected to double. 130 million people were expected to die of starvation. Now that's 260 million. Food scarcity in the third world is Norman, normal, but a waste is more the norm for the rest of the globe. So the horseman's commissioned to carry out all four judgments of God with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. 
What the sword leaves, famine takes. What famine leaves, pestilence will take. What pestilence leaves behind, wild beasts will finish. It's a picture of nations, empires, and kingdoms being vanquished. It's pretty serious. A similar picture of this occurred when Rome fell. If you uh, look back in history, carnage and oppression created scarcity and famine, which eliminated produce for the present and then even destroyed all hope for future harvests. And this is what the world's probably going to look at. An atmosphere rose of disease and epidemics from this noxious food that was left. It was called the Plague of Syrian or, or Cyprian. It was raged for 15 years in every province and city of Rome in, all across their empire. In some seasons, 5,000 people died daily in Rome. And many towns were entirely depopulated. It was a tough time. So the real essence of what is about to happen and continue for some time is the realization that most people do not hear the voice of the Lord. And for me, this is what concerns me the very most. A lot of people will die as this continues to happen in the world. But where we as Christians should be most concerned is are we hearing the voice of the Lord and can others Here's what Amos says. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. See, worldwide panic and irrational fear over a virus. People acted crazy, still are. But in fact, they're just deceived. They're hearing the voice of the liar and deceiver because long ago they started believing everything was relative. Now truth is whatever they say it is. They make it true because they believe it. If they feel afraid, to them it means they should be afraid. And next comes sheer irrational terror, all because of a feeling. They've come to love falsehood so they don't consider God an answer, let alone the only answer. And this is what the church is now living to deal with. Here's what Ephesians says. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It may seem like the worst has passed us as America's death toll sinks and jobs are being reclaimed. But our eyes have been distracted by a very well promoted virus and our focus has been on safety. While something much more sinister than sickness or death has been claiming victories. The calling of the church is to revival, not survival. We are to create an atmosphere for his presence, not just stay alive. There is coming a day when men will not beg to be safe and sheltered at home or demand others to be sanitized and masked, but will cry to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, the times and events that accompany a glimpse of the end will always be the end of the world as you know it, or at least feel like it. Death and change are both very persuasive teachers. We are going to press into Pentecost what that means in relation to this fourth horseman and in just in general is how we deal. We're coming up next. We're going to walk down the pilgrimage road. I actually got to do this on video yesterday with uh, the city of David where they've beginning to finish out the pilgrimage road that goes all the way up to the temple. So we're going to talk about that next. This is something that really applies to everybody, every Christian, every believer. Yep. The Lord, he is the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, as I just finished my second cup of coffee, because otherwise it's really not coffee with Corey if you don't have coffee. You know? True. So I did my job. It's required um, if you're in the studio. You have, you have to get to have close coffee. to Corey. You have to get close to coffee. <laughs> and Pentecost, you get close to God. And 
he wanted us to learn that lesson so literally that he made these three of the major feasts were all what they call pilgrimage feasts, where wherever you live, you needed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So you had to come close to God. You had to come near to him. So when you think Pentecost, whether it's today, tomorrow, or Sunday, you know the bottom line of what it's about is God wants you to draw near to him because he's drawn near to you. So we're going to call this one Pilgrimage Road. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, that is the authority of hell, shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Why is that important? Why do you need the power of the Holy Spirit? In the end times, the type of miracles and judgments seen in the Exodus and in the early church will be multiplied worldwide as prayer becomes like the staff of Moses that he held. As Jesus leads, the church is going to demonstrate his power. He said, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. So if that's the case... We need the Holy Spirit more than anything. Pentecost is the conclusion of counting the Omer, or 50 days since Resurrection Day, First Fruits. If we've done it well, then, because today tonight begins Pentecost, so if you've done it well over the last 50 days, then a change should have occurred in our lives. Psalm 90 says this, So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, establish the work of our hands. It also says, Blessed are you, are those whose strength is in you whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. It's neat because, you know, we're never satisfied with what we have. <laughs> we're forever on the wrong pilgrimage, thinking the end is the goal. But the blessed man is the man on pilgrimage, not the guy that arrives. He said the blessing is to be on pilgrimage. Habakkuk says this, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And see, counting the Omer from, if you will, from Easter or Passover to Pentecost includes a lot of lingering and waiting because it takes us from one pilgrim feast, unleavened bread, to the next pilgrim pilgrimage feast, which is Pentecost. The journey of the 50 days is part of the pilgrimage. But the real pilgrimage begins when you arrive in Jerusalem at the Pool of Siloam. With your offering, you then cleanse yourself in the pool. As you exit, you took the first steps onto what they called the pilgrimage road that led up to the temple where your sacrifice would be received. Every step would be taken with this expectation of grace and forgiveness pouring out on you. Now, the Bible says in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You know, I think we all hate to wait, but counting the Omer was all about waiting <laughs> to receive what? Well, we know because 10 days after the resurrection of Jesus, we learned it was to receive the Holy Spirit. So the question, how do you celebrate Pentecost? Well, Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place you'll choose at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So first and foremost, you give a gift. It's about giving. The counting of the Omar remembers the days between the exodus from Egypt and the giving of the word of God on stone tablets at Mount Sinai. 3,500 years ago, and when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles and on the new church 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. 
Just as tablets of stone were turned into the very words and laws of God, so were the hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh as the Holy Spirit came upon them. At Pentecost, nothing from that year's wheat harvest could be eaten until after the wave offering was made. Why? Well, God established these festivals as times of divine renewal or newness. What was forbidden became permissible. When Jesus came out of the grave, he presented to his father the wave offering of all the souls who had been locked away in Hades for 4,000 years, up to 4,000 years. He opened the door into eternity with God for all mankind, including you, who've been trapped in sin and death. We who were forbidden to approach God became acceptable and part of the divine harvest. When he poured out the Holy Spirit, he enabled us to go from redeemed to empowered, from indwelt to overflowing. He's always taking us from glory to glory. And we're not done when we're saved and we're not done when we're empowered. There is no salvation or filling, infilling of the Holy Spirit without the cross. There's no power apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Numbers 20 says this. Now the Lord will give you meat and you'll eat. You'll not eat for just one day or two. Not five or ten or twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. That is such an important scripture. And they were supposed to eat all this meat. And Moses is saying, "How? I, if I had all the flocks and herds in the world, I couldn't feed them. All the fish in the sea went. And God said, is the Lord's arm too short? You know, if God is with us, our greatest lesson is don't doubt and don't fear. It's so easy to doubt that God will intervene for us, and it's why we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's not about what you had or have or will have. He is among us and wants to sustain us from our breath to the beating of our heart to every single thing. The clothes and shoes of the Israelites didn't wear out at all in the 40 years of desert wandering. Water came out of a rock for them to drink their fill. God has promised to supply all of our needs through his riches in Christ Jesus and to, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. If you notice, they're added to you, not just given immediately. As the apostles prayed that morning at Pentecost, awaiting what Jesus promised, they didn't know quite what to expect, only to expect. <laughs> and they were expecting an outpouring of God upon them. In an instant, the Holy Spirit fire fell on them. They began speaking in languages they did not know. And joy filled them like never before. And courage and boldness just soared within them. Coming up, we're going to look back to that fourth horse again. And what he's supposed to do on the earth. To kill by sword, famine, plague, and wild beast. And look and see how that relates to the uh, sacrifices that happened. A lot of sacrifices that happened on the day of Pentecost. about the reaper here why does the fourth seal in the pale horse occur on pentecost if it does uh the bible says this in revelation 6 about the fourth one they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth so there are four offerings or sacrifices sacrifices are taking the place of you dying that's the whole point of the sacrifice they're the ultimate judgment so what i want you to think about is look for the contrast here when you see the offerings of the old testament at pentecost and this fourth horseman is killing by sword famine plague and wild beasts there are also four things here so look at it's life or death 
And it's Jesus or destruction. So if we are looking at this glimpse of this fourth horse and what's about to come out on the earth is even worse than what we've been for through before, here's a little bit of why that is. So first of all, let's talk about that sword and which would coincide with the first offering of Pentecost, which is the burnt offering. So you have the sword, which is the word, the law. If you notice, sword, word, law, they all kill. <laughs> and this relates to the burnt offering because, see, it's all burned. You don't get to share in that or eat in it or anything. The life and death of Jesus perfectly accomplished the will of God. He had to die. Uh, the second here is famine. Now, if you notice that at Pentecost, you have a little bit of everything as part of the sacrifice, including bread. It says in John 6, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In other words, he's saying, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear anything. I've got you. So famine relates to the Pentecost meal offering of leavened bread that's waved. It's got flour, frankincense, oil, and salt. And it represents an unblemished life, not from salvation, but from the indwelling Holy Spirit leading you to repentance. You are made from the finest flour. You're holy from the blood of Jesus, but you are leavened. You are overcoming sin daily. The fourth of the plagues of the things that are killing in the fourth horseman are these wild beasts, right? Or I'm sorry, the third we're up to, which is plague. And it relates to the sin offering because it's for the remission of sin. First you have salvation, then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It has to be in that order. The Bible said in Acts 2 when Jesus uh, had poured out the Holy Spirit and Peter stepped up and began preaching, he looked at them pretty seriously and said, Jesus, whom you crucified, and he told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it is a gift, and so Jesus is the answer to plague. He's always the answer to plague because he's the answer to sin. Sin is the greatest plague. Now, wild beasts, this is an interesting thing that comes on the world. That relates to the fellowship or peace offering because Jesus became our peace or our substitute. It's interesting when people are afraid they do desperate things, even eating roadkill. Yeah, Exodus 22. When people, uh, you are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. See, when people get desperate, they do weird things. When people trust God, they walk in peace and provision. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. It was a promise of Leviticus 26. So a question, why does God give his church this warning or this glimpse or this preview before this fourth horseman comes one day in the end times? Well, Pentecost was when the words of the Holy Spirit poured out of the mouth of his church. The fruit of their lips was praised and the gospel which led to revival. In Acts 2, Peter showed no fear, no hiding, no denying, no going fishing because it's about the harvest. You will choose fear or you'll choose faith. That's why the spirit of fear is here right now and taking as many prisoners as possible because the great harvest is about to come. What coincides with this fourth horse is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and that is revival. The focus on Pentecost is on wheat. You know, there's lots of sacrifices, but in terms of grain, it's wheat. 
and they brought the first fruits of all of their crops. There were seven of them at Pentecost. Wheat, barley, which came from Passover, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. If you notice, there's seven gifts and seven fruits of the Holy Spirit. Leviticus 23 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, can I just tell you, no matter what happens, if things get rough again as they did early on this year, that scripture alone should remind you, do not hoard. Do not go panic and crazy and leave nothing for the poor or the foreigner residing among you. The Lord God said, stop thinking like that. Pentecost is the day the Holy Spirit came upon believers gathered together. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life? You manifest the fruit of the Spirit. The fourth horseman and the Feast of Weeks are fulfilled in the empowering of the church to bring the harvest of the gospel and the end times harvest by Jesus. In Revelation 20, you see this harvest. I looked and there was... Before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a gold crown on his head and sharp sickle in his hand. That's Jesus. The time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. That's kind of a cool picture. Jesus on a cloud with a sickle. Notice the fourth horseman rides, and it's all bad, but there's also God, the Lord, the Lamb, opening the seal, and that means there's good. The fourth creature has the face of an eagle he's the one who announces the fourth seal and god uses the eagle imagery when he speaks about delivering them in exodus 19 you yourselves have seen what i did to egypt and how i carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself so he compares himself to that eagle god protects us like an eagle protects its young in a desert land he in a desert in a desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him he guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up his nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft the lord alone led him no foreign god was with him so again this eagle is also he wants us to come to be like a mother eagle who is stirring up those that come after us to do the dangerous thing. They actually toss them out of the uh, nest and they have to fly. And that's, in a real sense, what we do with each other is we challenge arpen, iron sharpens iron. God renews us like an eagle is renewed also. Isaiah 40, even youth grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. If you wonder, why am I going through this? Well, a lot of times it's to strengthen your wings. God gives a serious warning to what will happen in the end if you choose ungodly leaders. And this probably is the most important of all the eagle scriptures that go with this fourth horseman. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves to their own destruction. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no head that will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. That's Hosea 8. So 
part of what is happening, and I think in our world, we're, we're in some states, you're certainly seeing that uh, the election of certain leaders has led to the destruction of the people, the suffer, the greater suffering of the people. And that's one of the things you start to discover even more as this fourth horseman pours forth the judgment that he has. So that's where we're at coming up is um, we're going to start looking as in and specifically within Pentecost, how you receive the Holy Spirit, what that looks like to you today. Yeah, teaching perpetually. You know, Pentecost is a great feast, a great festival, but it means different things to different people, obviously. Mm -hmm. It has, you know, the three names. It's a festival of weeks to the Jews, uh, or actually that's really what we would call it, the festival of weeks, to the, to the Jews it's Shavuot. And to the Greeks, it's Pentecost because it means 50 days because from the Feast of Weeks or what we would, our first fruits, what we call Resurrection Day, you count 50 days until this date, which is Pentecost. So Mm -hmm. Pentecost is the only festival that doesn't have an actual date. We can't say it's on this date every year. It's exactly 50 days after first fruits. So what in the world? So we're going to celebrate it beginning tonight. People will be celebrating it tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, and what they call Pentecost Sunday for more of the uh, the Christian church and, and how we function because they count from Easter. Hmm. So what God begins, he finishes. That's one of those very important lessons of the counting of the Omer. Omer is days in Hebrew, so you're counting days. You're counting seven weeks or 50 days. Leviticus 23 says this, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that's resurrection day, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So uh, at Passover, they, the harvest is for barley. But wheat takes longer to ripen, and so they have to take those extra 50 days. And then for Pentecost was their their harvest festival that was for wheat. So thinking, going back in time, Passover was the crucifixion. It was on a Thursday. The Friday night to Saturday night, Sabbath comes next. So the day after the Sabbath, when you start counting to 50, was Resurrection Day. Jesus comes out of the tomb and into us. 50 50 days later, the Holy Spirit comes out of heaven and into us. John 20, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together and the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And After he said this, he showed them his hands and signed. The disciples, obviously, were overjoyed when they saw the Lord again. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, I hate to be put any pressure on you as a Christian, but that's a pretty big one. To say that you know Jesus, to have Christ in you, means the power to forgive or the power to cause someone's sin to stay upon them. That's pretty heavy duty. This can be a little confusing because of how he says two things. It's really only confusing in English, not in Hebrew. It's the perfect tense concept. Jesus is beginning something that will actually happen later. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, this was not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was salvation, the receiving of Christ. They'd followed him and put their faith in him, but could not receive him until he rose. 
So, again, <laughs> they're receiving, but waiting till after he rises to receive him. So that's that perfect tense. Were they saved for the last three years where they walked with him? Yes, but not yet. That's the perfect tense. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness. So, in other words... If Christ is in us, we're still we're still here in these bodies that are terrible, but we know Jesus, and Christ is in us. I am Galatians two. I am crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So you see again, here we are. We're dead, and Christ is alive in us. But much of this happens in eternity. My children, with whom I travail again in birth until Christ is formed in you. So again. Is he in us or is he not? Yes, he is, but he's being formed in us. But yes, he's in us. So that's, again, it's a Hebrew concept. That Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. So again, he's here, but in order for him to be there, you have to have faith. So he also says, I'm sending you. He told them to wait until they received the Holy Spirit before they went anywhere. He said, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And again, this is the first day of the 50 days, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is receiving Christ. This all happens on the, on the evening of Resurrection Day, day one of counting to 50. The whole 50 days counting to Pentecost is all about Jesus showing that he is faithful. See, when he begins, he finishes. That's how we think of it using the English language. In Hebrew, you'd think of it like this. What he does, he does. Day one Jesus rises to life again. We count seven weeks. Seven is the number of completeness and perfection. If week one was about resurrection power, week two is twice as powerful. Week three doubles that power. So something is coming that's powerful. It's not just about Jesus having more power. He already had all the power. He's getting ready to give us power. We're his body on the earth. Greater things will we do. How much greater? Seven times greater. John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. How much greater? Seven times. Coming up, one of the most confusing parts of the baptism of the Holy Spirit's got to be tongues. And so we're going to look at voices and fire. I just have a sense that it's just meeting people right where they need, right where they need it. Oh, I, I do pray it is. It's uh, it's one of those times where when you get to Pentecost, we want you to encounter the Holy Spirit. We want you to get all of Jesus that you can get. I was listening to the Joshua Aaron and thinking about when last time we were in Jerusalem and I... Um, I had heard that the pilgrimage road was had been discovered and they had been working to open it up. And this, the pilgrimage road is where you went from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple. is where you took your sacrifice. And so while we were over near it, I said, hmm, and nobody was there. So I snuck in. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they were all just giving lectures and stuff. I said, well, they're not watching. So I got to walk up through some and looked in and met a guy in there who was one of the excavators and showed me a bunch of stuff. And it just so happens when friends on Facebook with the city of david which you can just go up look at the city of david and they're doing uh, live video tours and they got halfway up uh, a few weeks ago and now they did the rest of the way hmm. or the tail take you all the way up on the video yesterday so i was literally on, on the video watching <laughs> where i had been walking you know <laughs> uh last last year and just enjoying getting to go the rest of the way on that journey so this 
this festival of Pentecost is one of those that you walked on the pilgrimage road and it was very important and where you ended up was you ended up on the top what we call the this big platform now where the temple was put but that was where the the book of acts where they say the holy spirit came down as tongues of fire that's where it happened not in some little room somewhere but it happened right there in where the jews would gather together they would have been there praying all night long and it is definitely the most unusual things i remember as a kid growing up and tongues of fire and i've always thinking what in the world is a tongue of fire because you know what your tongue looks like so i'm mm-hmm. thinking tongues <laughs> made out of fire above their head and uh it's such a uh, you know it's a kid but you know you don't have anything else to judge it by but uh it's a pretty cool thing so we're going to talk about where this all came from it didn't just happen in acts this actually is old testament from mount sinai on the first Pentecost, signs and wonders accompanied the giving of the Torah, the law, at Mount Sinai. And there was, ready, smoke, fire, and a cloud on the mountain. The mountain trembled, and the blast of a shofar sounded louder and louder. The voice of God was audibly heard by the entire nation. Every single person that came out of Egypt standing at Mount Sinai heard the voice of God. Now, according to the Midrash, which is a traditional Jewish interpretation of scripture, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai was accompanied by several wonders. Number one, flames of fire, which came to each individual at Sinai. So they're not reading from the book of Acts. This is where they're reading from the the story of the Exodus. It says, this is in the Midrash. On the occasion of the giving of the Torah, the children of Israel not only heard the Lord's voice, but actually saw the sound waves as they emerged from the Lord's mouth. They visualized them as fiery substance. Each commandment that left the Lord's mouth traveled around the entire camp and then came back to every Jew individually. So if you're wondering where the imagery in the, in the book of Acts, when they wrote that, what people were thinking, well, actually, it wasn't as bizarre as it was to me as a little kid <laughs> because they grew up with it in their midrash. So number two, the voice of God speaking in every language known to man. So in rabbinic lore, there are 70 mother languages. It says, and all the people witness the thunderings, plural. So it is said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 language so that all the nations should understand. Because you remember, even though the Jews came out of Egypt, there was others with them. The Egyptians and others came along with them. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, this is Exodus, they trembled with fear. In Hebrew, the thunder and lightnings in this passage is by English translator, translated it a little bit funny. Actually, I think it'd be incorrect, but thunder and lightnings should really literally say voices and torches or fires or lights, basically. Voices was translated thunders because voices are normally heard rather than seen. And torches was translated lightnings to perhaps match logically thunder and lightning. Right? But it's actually, it really is voices and fire. So the word voices is plural. What the people heard was one God, but many voices or languages. This means that everyone heard the Torah in a way they could understand it in the language that they spoke, even though they were a mixed multitude. What's wonderful about that is if you raise children, you know, you have to figure out a way to communicate the gospel, the truth to a child. And this is modeled here by God and the fact that he spoke in a way that everyone could receive it. And for the rest of your life, he's going to speak to you in that same way, in a way that you can understand. In Acts chapter 2, we have 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. A large fire of some sort came down from heaven and then divided and covered each one of them is what we're talking here. All of them, back to the scripture, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here we have voices and torches or fires again. Acts 2. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them, each of us, hears them in our own native language? Now, it's interesting because uh, while tongues is a language that you receive, if you listen to seeing what's being said here, the Bible says the people heard in their language. It doesn't say that the languages were spoken or that the apostles were speaking in that language, just that they heard. So just like at Sinai, everyone heard in their own language as God was speaking. So it was God who was speaking. The disciples and followers of Jesus were all aware of the giving of the Torah at Shavuot. They knew the story of the words of fire resting on individuals at Shavuot. They knew the story of God's voice speaking to all mankind in every language at Shavuot, the very first one with Moses. Therefore, the miracles and the signs and the wonders they experienced in Acts chapter 2, carried deep significance and prophetic fulfillment. You wonder why 3,000 people went, whoa, what just happened? And why they responded the way they did? Because it wasn't surprising. The tongues of fire and the speaking in every tongue were both direct allusions to the Mount Sinai experience and to the receiving of the Torah. They understood that it was the fulfillment of the greatest prophet ever to them, who was Moses. So uh, we're going to look now um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, an event in history, uh, is it for today? Yes, it is. What about this constant refilling? We're going to look at all of that next when we go out of control. Talking about being out of control. Out of control. When you talk about the Holy Spirit, that's the one thing you've mm-hmm. got to be. You've got to be out of control because there is only one God, and you better believe if he's going to come into your life, he's going to be in control. Amen. And that is why this constant battle, this constant fight, this constant temptation. And one of the things we did this year or this for this Pentecost is going back the first two-thirds of this teaching, actually go and look at end times and this uh, possible glimpse that we've been getting in this pandemic of these four horsemen. It is not the end times, I promise you that. I, well, I believe it's not. Nobody can really know these things. But I don't believe we're in that that close to the, and if it was a great tribulation, we were just the beginning of that. But I think that's still some years away. But I do believe just like in World War II and World War II, we've been seeing a glimpse. And so I go back and we start with Purim and go to Passover, second Passover, and then we wrap up here at the fourth feast, which is Pentecost. And we began to look and see what that lo- would look like if the fourth horse rode out on the seals. And and we got all that done earlier this morning. And now we're just going through actual Pentecost and what that means, how you can engage and encounter this day of Pentecost, which is for some because there's three ways to look at it. You have it's the Feast of Weeks, if you just want English, Shavuot, if you want Hebrew, or Pentecost, which is a Greek word that simply means 50, because you count 50 days from the the resurrection day all the way to Pentecost. So uh, that's why some people will be celebrating it tonight, 
tomorrow night or on Sunday or all three. Either all are good. But if if it is, as I believe God was saying to me, I believe we're about to see many of the things of that fourth horseman, a small glimpse of that, certainly not that degree, uh, beginning. So I don't think that we're out of the woods of what's come. But I just so, so think it's important. The reason I've taken so much time to share this was because as Christians, we cannot live either quarantined or in fear or uh, not gathering together that if we are going to change the world, we've got to change the world. And so I wanted to share all of this and kind of give you that perspective. So that's all that first part. So, but we're now to the part where how do you get out of control? Well, that's a big one. <laughs> Was the baptism of the Holy Spirit an event in history? Absolutely. Has it continued to happen even to our current day? Absolutely. Is it a one-time occurrence or a constant refilling? Well, of course, it is definitely a one-time filling up, but more is always available. That's the best part. In a very practical sense, we count down the 50 days to Pentecost because 2,000 years ago was not a one-time experience for the disciples, but rather the first experience of a constant refilling of the Spirit. So as we arrive at Pentecost, let's seek together to encounter the baptism of the Holy Spirit for those who never have and ask for even more of that very wonderful manifest presence of Jesus for those who have encountered the baptism but are still longing for more of his touch. Now, if your particular church upbringing has left you rather confused or even hesitant about the possibilities of such encounters and experiences in our day because there are many, many churches that teach, nope, it doesn't happen anymore. Listen to Jesus describe what the average Christian life would look like just before he ascended. And these signs will follow those who believe. There's no timeline on that, is there? And by day, they will, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up servants. And if they drink anything deadly, it will be by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Notice there's a whole lot of power going on in there. And that's what we're supposed to look like. Earlier in Mark 16, we can see why they needed a significant encounter. When the women first came to the tomb after the resurrection and encountered an angel, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Then when Mary Magdalene finally gained the courage to tell the apostles, they did not believe. That's what the scripture says. When the two disciples walked with Jesus on the road and shared their story, they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Obviously, Jesus doesn't want any of us to repeat the mistakes of the apostles or fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 28, which says, Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? For with stammering lips and another tongue, he'll speak to this people to whom he said... (coughs) This is the rest for which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So there's this constant warning over and over in Scripture of what happens when we just don't want to do what we're told. Forty years ago, on the second Friday of August in 1980, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I was utterly shocked that other languages, which I didn't understand or speak, were suddenly pouring out of my mouth. It is a little shocking. 
a moment before I'd been standing in a field worshiping in the only language I'd ever spoken, English. I'd never heard anyone speak in tongues before or even heard anyone teach on it. The Holy Spirit massively changed my life in much the same way Jesus had the year before when I gave my life to him and I got saved. So that was exactly 40 years ago this August. Hmm. How to catch the wind. John 3 says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Hebrew word for wind or breath is ruach. It's also the word for spirit. Obviously, we can't dictate the moving of the wind or the spirit. Thankfully, we don't have to catch the wind to be filled with the spirit. I've known many people who have earnestly sought the baptism of the Holy Spirit but still haven't received. Some went away bitter, some went away offended. Some stopped seeking and plunged into denial, declaring that they'd received the baptism when they were saved and no tongues were required. Forget that. Sadly, I also know of teachers who claim to be filled with the Spirit and intentionally deceived other seekers into mumbling repetitious phrases and declared, oh my goodness, just uh, it was a move of the Spirit. And it wasn't, obviously. Striving in the flesh for a move of God is agonizing. So is screaming at the wind to blow where we want it to blow. Micah 6, 8 says, has he shown you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, Talk humbly with your God. We need to be much more like a windmill, which is designed to be propelled by the wind, no matter which direction it's blowing, in order to generate power. If we want to be filled, then we need to be sensitive to which way he's blowing. And then we'll not only be filled, but empowered by the Holy Spirit to do his will. It says in Psalm 104, you make your messengers into winds of the Spirit, and all your ministers become flames of fire. In Luke 15, then Jesus said to me, suppose you have a friend, you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me. I've got no food to offer him. Suppose one inside answers, don't bother me. Door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Well, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, <laughs> yet because of your shameless audacity, I love that word, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So could you ask for a simpler answer than that? What does he God want us to do? He wants us to ask. And because you're counting the Omer, counting the days for 50 days, you should know that sometimes it's immediate. Other times you have to wait and linger and have confidence that it will come. However that works, you still have to do it however God's going to do it in you. Coming up, suppose you didn't. Suppose you just got right into ministry. What gifts do you have if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? If there's no speaking in tongues, do you have gifts from God? Well, obviously you do. So what are they? We'll look at that and wrap this whole discussion up next. This is Keith and our general manager, Ray Haynes. He's been in studio teaching about Pentecost and the pale horse. As we come to a close today, that song fits perfectly. No stone, no grave can hold back your power. You know, well, back in November, we took everybody up onto the Temple Mount right at that spot where we believe they received the Holy Spirit. Mm. What a cool place. Yeah. You know, 
As we looked up, for me, I believe so much happened on the Mount of Olives, including uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's where he ascended and just such a powerful thing. So we stood on that spot and just looked up to that whole journey that happened. And, you know, God wants us to encounter him. Thankfully, I love to go to Israel, love to teach in Israel, especially one of my absolute favorite things. But if we had to go to Jerusalem or Israel to encounter Jesus to get saved or filled, we'd all be in trouble. Mm. But praise God, we don't. Uh, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you after this. But I just wanted to challenge you. If you've wanted to receive more, if you want more of Jesus, if you want to encounter the Holy Spirit, we're going to pray for you to do that. I'm just going to give you a few thoughts here and um, what's going on in your life and why maybe you should pursue more. I think you always should some more, no matter what. So, when Peter began preaching after the Holy Spirit fell on them in the temple grounds, he spoke of King David, whose tomb was right beneath them. Peter quotes David, saying, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. It's funny how Peter was pointing out that this gift of tongues was a fulfillment of what King David saw prophetically. And he adds, the Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, in other words, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Peter was saying that the purpose of the infilling and empowering was happening to cause all the Son's enemies to be subjugated. The Holy Spirit baptism can occur any time after Jesus comes to dwell in our hearts. He doesn't get buried in our hearts. <laughs> he plants himself in order to bear fruit. We literally become a tree that bears spiritual fruit. All we have to do is ask and receive. Sometimes that includes asking until we receive. There are nine fruits listed in Galatians 5. All come as a result of life on a tree, which requires us to grow. Controlling the tongue is not easy. Our unruly tongue requires revival. Faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, joy, kindness, long-suffering, love, peace, and self-control are all expressed in many ways, but never so beautiful as with the tongue. Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Still, there's more to the spirit than tongues or what, or what and how we speak. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us there are many spiritual gifts, including word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, working in miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So the Spirit distributes them individually as he wills. Why does he give them? Well, these nine gifts require us to minister to others in order for us to use them. They're not for keeping or storing up, but rather for using and giving away. Deuteronomy 30 reminds us, but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Uh, in Acts 1, here's what 4 to 8 says. And being assembled together with them, he had commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, there has been more conflict throughout church history on this one subject than probably every other issue combined because it's not intellectual, can't be understood or argued or controlled by man. It requires faith and obedience, that is, the receiving of the baptism. The experience was different for me than it was for Kelly, than it was for Corey. Wait for the promise, no matter how long it takes, no matter what others experience. Don't assume God will do things the same way with you. Uh, I always say worship him constantly, ask to be filled. When opportunities arrive for the laying on of hands, 
Uh, you know what? Have faith and see what happens. Don't stop till you're full. I don't care if you have a hundred times you you pray or ask other people to pray for you, and uh, you don't receive anything. Keep up. There's a big question and has been since the turn of the last century: Is the baptism of the Spirit? If you don't speak in tongues, have you received the baptism in the Spirit? If you don't speak in tongues, but obviously have gifts and anointing, then they're coming from a different source than what is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would be one of those that says, no, without tongues, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have a different baptism, and that's fine. But you do need to know what you have. Uh, Romans 12 are the gifts of the Father. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to your faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. Who teaches in teaching, who exhorts in exhortation, who gives with liberality, who leads with diligence, who shows mercy which your Fullness. Those are the gifts that come from the Father. There's also gifts from Jesus, Ephesians 4. And he himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, you, there are gifts of the Holy Spirit that come apart from tongues. So you may have other gifts, but uh, without that baptism of the Holy Spirit, simply because you are saved, it means the Holy Spirit dwells within you, so his gifts are functioning. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, notice each one, for the profit of all, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healing. Uh, to another, the working of miracles, another prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, to another, interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works in all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. All right? So it could be gifts of the Father, it could be gifts of the Son, it could be gifts of the Holy Spirit. This, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is very specific, and it, it is an empowering, and it is the gift of tongues. And you know what? Uh, you essentially need to stop long enough to quiet yourself, to ask God to fill you, and then allow, allow that language to come out. You know, you're going to feel silly and crazy, but you know what? If you want to talk to somebody, you can always call and say, is this what I'm experiencing? And we'll be glad to take care of you. So that's what I have for you today. Let's uh, pray and expect. Father, I thank you for how you love us. You treasure us. You rejoice over us with singing. You delight in us. You call us the apple of your eye, the very center of your attention. Lord, we've talked about this Pentecost. We've talked about the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, what happened then. And you've said to seek you that we might be filled. So, Lord, we seek you. I don't know who else is crying out to you right now, but I, I pray in agreement with them. Lord, would you come and would you fill them with the, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues? Would you fill them to overflowing? Would you meet them on every level to give them through that gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the speaking of tongues, that they might be able to cry out and pray to you in all situations through the groaning of your Spirit within them, even words and sounds that they don't even understand. And Lord, however you want to use that with them, just do that. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to the Pentecost and the Pale Horse with our general manager, Ray Haynes, this morning. If you missed any of the breaks, if you missed and want the notes, make sure you go to victoryblog.victory.radio or go to victory.radio slash podcast or in the podcast section and be able to listen back, read through the notes, and really just continue to enjoy everything that he's brought to us, all the knowledge in this time. And it has been a different season. It's been a different feeling. And so maybe that's just what we need is just to get closer to him.